Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 31. Remember who is writing this gospel. And again, this is very important, giving uh, the story that we're about to, to read, which contains two miracles. And as we continue our Savior's saga, for the next 11 chapters, you're going to see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And people often say, well, you know, I don't believe in miracles. And I say, well, you're looking at one. That would be me. Uh, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. Uh, Abuse started in my life when I was very young. My parents divorced. I'm one of those people that should be the casualty of the things of this world. Uh, I was in business for... More than a dozen years, very wealthy, became an alcoholic, nearly destroyed my marriage, and yet the God that is still El Roi, the God that is still Jehovah Rapha, the God that is still El Gabor, came to me once again and said, Jeff, I still want to use you. I am a walking miracle. And the reason I say that to you is that is the way we closely see the work of the Lord in our world today. But remember what's going on as the Gospels are authored. There was no history of God redeeming soul after soul after soul and changing life after life after life. There was no history of now 2,000 years of the work of the Gospel in the world There was just simply a carpenter from Nazareth who happened to also be a rabbi who has declared himself son of God, who said, I'm Messiah. And so you might expect that the Lord would do something to validate the truth behind his words. And so the miracles that we have form the backdrop of that verification or that validation or the attestation to. In other words, God through what he will do in the life of Jesus is going to prove exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is going to perform miracles. But at no point in time has God asked you to stick your brains in a box and put them on a shelf. And so these things to some people, well, I don't see how he could do that. Well, it's real simple. He's God. And that same God that was at work then is at work now. He may work in a different way in your life, but he is still the miracle-working God. He continues to transform and change lives. He continues to save us from our sin. And so we now will unveil these first two miracles as Jesus commands both disease and demons. And so would you pray with me? We'll pick up in verse 31. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you that my own life 
I use testimony to your miraculous power. Lord, to what you have done in the life of one person that just simply came face to face with the Savior. And so, Lord, we pray that these miracles would be unveiled to our eyes that we'd see and know and understand in our hearts and minds that you were the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are able and still doing miracles in our midst, and pray that you'd bless us as we study your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 31, and but then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And it's plural there because this was Jesus' custom. Uh, he was rather like an itinerant preacher, an itinerant teacher that went from synagogue to synagogue sharing truth. He was well-respected and well-known. In that sense, he was a teacher. And in fact, when he is called by Mary, Rabboni, that is what that word means. Rabbi simply means one who teaches. And so here is Jesus leaving Nazareth, and he's going down to the Sea of Galilee. And this is an absolute fact. When you go to Israel and you travel, uh, you'll find out that Nazareth sits nearly 2,000 feet above sea level, and the Sea of Galilee is 683 feet below sea level. So it's down. He's traveling down to the sea, another little tiny piece of information that shows the accuracy of the scriptures. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. And now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, and now I want you to see two words here, which are accurate in the original language, let us alone. For what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Now remember that Jesus, Joshua, Yehoshua, it means God is salvation. So his very name would be an offense to a demon. Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Can I remind you that the demons know exactly who Jesus is? And this is such an incredible picture of the necessity of saving and believing faith. The demons absolutely know that Jesus is the Holy One of God, but they do not believe in him. You can have all kinds of truth about God and not know God. It's why religion is so dangerous. It's why church can actually be dangerous. You can gain head knowledge and never get to the heart. And so this demon that's in this man is about to be rebuked. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him saying, and that word rebuked is interesting, it, it literally has the connotation of muzzling. In other words, there's one who has power and one who doesn't. And the one who doesn't have power is the demon and the one who does have power is Jesus. Rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him into their midst, in other words, this man is, is acting out in a way that we would see with someone with multiple personality disorder. There's an us, there are multiple voices. I personally have had contact with a couple of people whom I believe had this exact same experience. 
Now, speaking in multiple voices. I had a woman at the camp one time that spoke with at least six different voices. And as she was in a service in the chapel, she began to cry out in agony. And we ended up having to talk to all six different people, laying hands on her and praying for her. At one point in time, she became so violent, it took about six of us to just keep her from harming herself. And she was not having an epileptic seizure. I believe she was literally inhabited by a demon. She had come with a church uh, group. She was not saved. Uh, after that retreat, she was a follower of Christ. That demon left. These things are real. Doesn't happen often in our world, especially in our culture where a vast majority of people know of the Savior. But these things are actually quite common in places where the Savior is not well known. So when you travel into the mission field, you'll often see people like this. Sometimes you'll see people like this on PCH. We would say they're homeless. And you see them having an argument with a, with a garment. You see them talking to people that aren't there. Your mind is part of your flesh. It is a chemical computer that is made out of meat. Carne. That's what carnal actually means, by the way. Same thing in Spanish means the same thing in Latin. So this meat computer can be affected by influences from the demonic realm. This man happened to be possessed by a demon. And it came out of him and did not hurt him. It, it left simply at the voice of Jesus. Amen? And then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, what word is this? Well, it's the word of the Son of God, who is the word. Amen? The word was with them, and the word was God. And so Jesus speaking is the equivalence of you reading your Bible today. You could look at it. When you read the word of God, this is the story of the Savior's work in this world. And it is the plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. So you now read the word. Then the word actually spoke. The word became flesh. Amen? So that word speaking into this man is the same effect, if you will, when we read the word of God and apply it to our lives. For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him, and here's the important part of all of this, went out into every place in the surrounding region. So there's the reason, the testification of who Jesus was. The moment these people saw this, they had to come to terms with what they saw. They had to know what it was that they saw. They began to reason amongst themselves, the scripture says. They, they thought, they were amazed, they spoke, they went back and forth as they saw this thing happen. In that particular region, and to get you located well so that you can understand it, this is only about 16 miles. So when you travel from Nazareth down around Mount Arbel, you go through a canyon that contains the stream that is Magdala, or the Migdal stream. There you would pass through Cana. You'd come to Magdala on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee at the north end. And you would come across the Sova the Coer, or the Cove of the Silver, yeah, get those reversed. 
Uh, and we'll try loaves and fishes next. The cove of the loaves and fishes, Tabka. And then finally, past the Mount of Beatitudes, where we're going to go very shortly, and then to Capernaum. And so a very quick trip, you could easily make that in a day. That wouldn't be a difficult thing. No one was carrying a 100-pound backpack. They weren't dragging a lot of stuff. You could simply walk it and get from Nazareth down to Capernaum. And when you got down to the Sea of Galilee, which is the majority of this trip, you would be on the Roman Via Maris, the way of the sea. The Romans controlled the roads. When they controlled the roads, they could control taxation. And so just out of this picture to the left side, to your left, is the city of Tiberias, which was the Roman headquarters and one of the cities of the Decapolis. The Romans had ten capital cities in the land of Palestine. One of them was on the Sea of Galilee. So this was a region that was inhabited primarily by Gentiles, but these cities were very close to one another. And in fact, during that time, it's believed there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 240 cities or towns, villages, that were around the Sea of Galilee. Each one of those, if they had a Jewish population, had a synagogue. So there was a synagogue in basically every village. And so when you go today, you'll find a synagogue, the remnants of it, at Capernaum. You'll find one in Magdala. You'll find one in Tiberias. You'll find one in Cana. You'll find one in Nazareth. So each place where there were some Jewish residents, at least 10 men, you would have a synagogue, and that is where the teachers would go to teach. As you get to Capernaum, this is an aerial view of it from a drone. There's the synagogue, and there's the place we're going to go next, Peter's mother-in-law's house. Now, today it looks a lot like a spaceship kind of like a UFO landed over Peter's house. Um, that's because that happens to be a Catholic church, and, and it has a glass floor, and underneath it you can actually see the remnants of Peter's mother-in-law's house. And so we have very, very, very strong evidence that not only is the Bible true, but these places are still there, and you can still go and visit them. And so Jesus begins to speak in that synagogue you saw in that picture. At G in, during Jesus' time, it was not as large. It had been enlarged over a period of uh, almost a thousand years to its current size. But the synagogue was no doubt in the same place and just outside of it, uh, in that little community of Capernaum where all kinds of ritual baths where people could go and cleanse themselves before they would uh, prepare themselves for Shabbat, for the Sabbath. And so here's Jesus inside this tabernacle that people would read the word of God in. And Jesus, the word, joins them there. But what had happened is as Jesus begins to speak, during the time that Jesus was alive and on this earth, the Jewish rabbis had begun to focus on, rather than the word, which at the time would have been the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and also the Tanakh, which would include the wisdom writings and the prophets, the history books, if you will, of the Jewish people, they had begun to focus in on what we would call commentary. They, they, they began to recite from the Talmud, uh, from those things which people were more interpretive. It wasn't actually the word itself. They would just simply say, well, this is what we think it means. 
And so Jesus comes and he speaks the word into their life. He says, look, this, this is who it is. And as Jesus does that, here's what happens to the demons. Because they were perfectly fine when you took the truth out of the word. We are not told how long this man had come to this particular synagogue. But the inference is this was not the first time he'd been there. He'd been allowed in before. But he felt comfortable before. And this is the problem when the church loses the focus of God's word. When we stop teaching the word of God and start having just simply opinions about what we think it means, we will find ourselves in the same place with demons in our midst. It is God's word that transforms lives. It is not what I think. Hopefully I don't mess up God's word. That's my goal. Every single time I come up here is, Lord, please don't let me mess up your word. Let me just teach it with the same authority that you authored it. Let me just present it so that people can know what it says. And so in this setting, this demon had become comfortable in church. Until the Lord Jesus himself, being the word, speaks to the demon, the demon takes a hike. It's like, ditch it, guys. We're out of here. The word of God always does that. The word of God is sharp, it is powerful, it's a two-edged sword, it divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It goes and it purposes to will what it is sent to do, and it simply does it. You see, with those evil spirits, those demons or demon with multiple voices tried to stay in this man, but when they were confronted with the word of God, they could not confess that Jesus was Lord. They had to run. They had no choice. Jesus in John chapter 13 says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. You cannot call Jesus Lord unless he's really your Lord. You know, it's interesting to me that people often don't reject Jesus the Savior. They, they like Jesus the Savior, the saving one. But they don't like Jesus the mastering one. They don't want Jesus messing with the apple cart of their life. They still want to be able to call the shots. This man was having the demons call the shots. And they're in 1 John chapter 4. That's why it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're of God. And it goes on to give us the test. Jesus is Lord. You can't call Jesus Lord unless he's Lord. You'll call him all kinds. You'll call him just Jesus. You may even call him Savior. But you can't call him Master unless he actually is. I'm going to speak to you for just a moment. I don't want to belabor this. But I think it's important to know the difference between demonic oppression and demonic possession. And for the church... I have listened to endless wranglings of some people in specific denominations who believe that somehow Christians can be possessed. I think that is not only not supported by Scripture, it is also ludicrous when you think about what we've been saved from. And so as you think on this, what was going on in this man's life, I believe because he was not a believer, he had not confessed Christ yet, 
Uh, he was, in fact, possessed. But let's be simply real here. There are demonic hosts in our world still today. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says that there are principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, heavenly hosts of wickedness. Now, as Paul wrote that, he was writing to the church. And so he's reminding us there is a formidable force of demonic hosts that exists in our world. But what he wasn't saying was that you can still be possessed. But what he was saying is that you can be oppressed. And that would be that external force pressing in on you. He, he was not saying, because 1 John chapter 4 plainly says, you are of God, little children. And when John writes these words, he's saying, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. Amen? So there is no way, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that any demon's going to take up residence when the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within you. But that doesn't mean that same demon can't hover around and mess with your head. Doesn't mean that same demon can't be zooming around someplace where you shouldn't be because you put yourself in harm's way. There may be a ton of demonic activity and you may be subjecting yourself to it by being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the, right, with the wrong people. And so make no mistake about it, there's no demon that's going to come into you, but they may absolutely still try and get to your head. And so for you, church, believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, do not open that door. The problem that I consistently and constantly see in the body of Christ is we put ourselves in harm's way. We hang out in places we should not be. We entertain thoughts we should not have. We actually allow exactly what scripture tells us not to do is do not give a foot place or a foothold to the enemy. And if you are constantly engaged in sinful behavior, you absolutely can expect you will be demonically oppressed. If you continue in the things you have been saved from, you can count on being demonically oppressed. If you hang out and are in situations that no child of God should be in, or if you entertain lifestyle choices which are not from the Lord, where scripture clearly speaks to those things, you can count on being oppressed. Why? Because you're basically telling the enemy that he is at least welcome near you. Hang out in my anger. Come dwell in my bitterness. In my drunken state. Anybody ever wondered why we call it stupid juice? <laughs> because this is a meat computer. It is altered exactly as scripture says. And so now you're not thinking right. So guess what? You hang out with people you shouldn't hang out with. You entertain thoughts you shouldn't entertain. You do things you shouldn't do. And so you set yourself up to go, well, what's real? And guess who's going to come try and tell you what's real? Those demonic hosts, that heavenly host of wickedness. They're going to go, oh, well, you, you deserve to do this. 
And so what happens when these things occur in your heart and your mind as a child of God? These are just some of the symptoms that I can tell you I have listened to over decades of counseling with people. Absolutely abnormal, irrational fear comes upon you. Why? Because you're not trusting in the living God, you put yourself in harm's way. And so the enemy is able to give you fear. It's like you don't know what's going to happen because you're not trusting in the Lord. You're trusting in this situation. Maybe you're trusting in a person. With that comes irrational anxiety. You're going to start being super anxious. It's like, I don't know why I'm doing these things. I don't know why I'm in this situation. When you don't yield to the work of the Spirit, very often the other option is the enemy tries to convince you that you should not have a relationship with the Lord at all. Loneliness. The devil loves to isolate believers. One of the great tragedies is believing the lie that you don't need church and you don't need Christian friends. You don't need fellowship, which by the way, the Bible says forsake not the word of God and the gathering together of the saints. Why? Because we need each other. Because there are some days when you're the doctor and I'm in the hospital and there are some days when I'm the doctor and you're in the hospital. You may need what I have and I may need what you have. And we minister one to another. But if you get totally isolated, you're going to find that demonic loneliness creeping in and just pressing down on you. Eventually what happens is you start to not care what the word of God says. I've had people look me square in the eye and say, I know the Bible says that, but I'm not going to do it. That is demonic oppression. From the outside, the enemy has convinced you the Bible's not true. And here's usually why. Because it messes with something that you're engaged in. You're already doing it. You've laid hold of it. It is a lifestyle to you and you don't want to give it up. And so you give up the word instead. Outburst of hatred. Malice. Who is God? God is love, isn't he? And so when you take that out of the equation, you say, you know what? I, I want to I walk around with this group uh, of people that don't really love God, guess what happens? You start to believe the lie of the enemy, that somehow anger and malice and hatred is beneficial. If I just hate enough, I'll finally get what I'm due. That is the demonic world forcing its view on you. You'll find the rest of these things, violent, reckless behavior, disdain. Remember, CCSB forward slash now. You can download these things. You can have them for later. But Paul reminds us that we are not to give a foot place. No quarter. During naval battles, the ships were divided into quarters. Quarter decks. And sometimes in a major sea battle, the ship would be boarded. And the whole point was to never give quarter to the enemy. Give no part of the ship to the enemy. You see, you could still be floating on the sea and the pirates were up on the bow. But it was only a matter of time before you were going to lose control of your ship. That's what your Bible says. Don't give any part of your life over to the control of the enemy. Do not allow him a place to operate from. If you do, 
you are undoubtedly going to at least to some degree open the door for the enemy to oppress you. A second part of this, before we turn our attention to the healer Jesus, don't let anyone else open the door either. Now this is a hard subject for me to talk to you about because that person may be your spouse. That person may be your children. That person could be your parents. It could be an awful lot of people who would willingly open the door in your life and you need to make sure that you have insulated yourself from the sins of others. Because absolutely bad habits do corrupt good morals. You can open the door by consistently and constantly hanging around people who do not love God. And where this works out is I've watched people for decades try and make peace with the enemy. We, we sit around and pretend, well, there's nothing wrong here. You have to take a stand for righteousness, and if you will not take a stand for righteousness, I guarantee the enemy will camp in your own home. And so when you're in those situations, in love, you must take a stand so that there is no footplace even in your own home. It might be an old business partner. It might be a new business partner. It may be someone that you deeply care about. But if they are engaging in behaviors that are contrary to the word of God, when you have struggles in your life and you hang out with people who do not even consider what your struggle is to be something worthy of, the contending, of contending with, let me give you an example of that. Alcohol. You're, you're sitting there and you know that God doesn't want you to ever be drunk again. And yet you won't take a stand in your own home that in my home, we don't do this here. And you try and live with that. Every time you walk past that cabinet, we're in here. <laughs> you open the fridge and there's Mr. Budweiser. It's that simple. You've given a footplace to the enemy. An area where maybe you have victory in your own personal life, but you are unduly being pressured because of the constant voice of the enemy that exists in someone else's life. Be careful. You are going to have to make difficult choices if you want to walk with the Lord in this world. You, you may need to get rid of some of the friends that you currently call, call friends on a daily basis. I'm not saying reject them so that you have no contact with them. I'm saying do not be so close that their effect on you is to draw you back into the world. It's oppression. It's the spirit of rebellion very often. It very often is a spirit of control. People are trying to get you to do what they do because they like it and you don't and they're going to try and bring you to that place to where you, have, you are affected the way that they're affected. You'll end up with a spirit of fear. You'll end up having to justify. You, you may end up telling stories, lies, 
to try and justify what it is that's going on in your life because you know the truth and you don't do the truth. You're not a doer of the word, you're just a hearer, and so you are tormented. The child of God who is not a doer of the word becomes tormented because the word will constantly remind you this is who you are in me. Jesus is going to say this is how you ought to act. And when you reject that time and time again, you're giving a foot place for the enemy. Be careful, family. Take stock of your own life and let God change those things. Let, let him renew your mind exactly as he wants to do. Let, let you not be conformed. What does Paul write to the church at Rome in Romans 12, verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the making new again of your mind. You've got to think about those friends. You've got to think about those relationships. You have to think about those behaviors. You have to think rightly about the things of God. Otherwise, you give a foot place to the enemy. Notice the second miracle, verse 38. And I think we can close fairly quickly with this. And now he arose from the synagogue. Because we're going to see him do this again and again and again. And entered Simon's house. So there's the reason you got an aerial view of Capernaum. He walked about 200 feet to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house, his wife's home. Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made a request of him concerning her. And so he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and made dinner, served them, did what every good Jewish mother would do, went back into the kitchen says, I feel better. I'm going to go do some cooking right now. And when, when the sun was setting, so Shabbat's over, the Sabbath day is over, and all those who had any that were sick, and I love this, of various diseases, it, it's almost like Jesus just opened a clinic just outside the synagogue. It's like, I'm over here, and anybody who was sick for any reason came over to that little tiny 10-foot by 12-foot room, and there was Jesus, and every time they came in, they went out healed. And I think there's a beautiful picture in this. Because to as many as call upon the Lord, they will be saved. To those that cry out to Jesus, they, they will be healed. And when we think of healing, unfortunately, we isolate it to just simply God taking away disease. But you know, sometimes the greatest healing that we ever experience is when he takes us home. When he does that final work in our life, where these mortal bodies, which are beautifully and wonderfully made, finally have run their course, and that ultimate healing happens and we go home to be with the Lord. And so there they were, Various diseases were brought to him. He laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And so the demons also, many of them, came out, crying out, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. Notice they still don't call him Lord. You are Messiah. We know who you are. Rebuking them, he did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, so this from sunset on Saturday 
to the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Jesus does this all night long. When it was day, he went to a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving. This is kind of like Neil Diamond's song, Brother Loves Traveling Salvation Show. It's like Jesus would walk and people would follow him. Everywhere he went, people knew, that's him. That's the one who could touch with the word. That's the one who could heal simply by the voice of his mouth. There's something different about him that even the demons knew that he was Christ. Even the demons knew he was the son of God. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. In other words, it was basically like the whole town of Capernaum started to follow Jesus around, probably to where I took that photo from, which is Gadara. You know it as the land of Hormel and Jimmy Dean Sausage. It's where the pigs are located. And so that was only a couple of miles away. And Jesus goes to a deserted, crosses over the Jordan River as it flows into the sea. And the people just follow him. But I have to preach to the other cities also. Maybe he went to Chorazon or to Bethsaida, which is just directly above Capernaum up on the hillside. Because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Jesus, our healer, also heals the sick. He takes care of the demonic for sure, but he also takes care of disease. And he did these things. Notice why. I must preach the kingdom of God. He didn't do it to be famous. He did it to tell people about the kingdom of God. He did it for the gospel so that people would believe on him not do what the demons did was simply acknowledge he's the Christ, but to believe on his name and be saved. That was the purpose. You know, sometimes I think we, we stop short of giving Jesus his due. In this case, he was fully acting as Jehovah Rapha, our God who heals it was very clear that no matter what was wrong, he was the cure. Amen? So whether you were possessed, oppressed, diseased, or sick in some way, if you came to Jesus, he was the answer. Church, for those of you that are visiting, he's still the answer. He has lost not one bit of his power. Uh, and... This list is not comprehensive, by the way. But he is still Jehovah Shammah. He's the God who's the ever-present help in your time of trouble. You see, when the scriptures unveil Christ to us and unveil God's character to us, he, we saw him act as Jehovah Rapha in this particular passage. Our God who heals. But he's also Yahweh or Jehovah Sidkenu the one who is our righteousness, because the righteousness you have as a believer is not your own righteousness, it's his, amen? You're putting on his righteousness. It's not yours, it's not mine, it's his. 
For those of you that came in hurting, there's something going on financially in your life, can I tell you that Jesus is absolutely still Jehovah Jireh? Our country is not your provider. Your job is not your provider. Jehovah Jireh is your provider. You see, sometimes we take these things away from the Lord and we give them to something or someone. But he is still who he is. He is your only source of peace. Peace treaties do not give us peace. The end of wars do not give us peace. Jehovah Shalom gives you peace. Because he is our peace, and we are kept at perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on, not the United States of America, on him. Amen? As glorious as our country is, make no mistake, I'm not bashing our country, I would live nowhere else. But he's our peace. You look at the world and we, we think we're being overrun. <laughs> There's so much going on that it's like, God, you know, when are you going to step into our, our situation? He's still the Lord of hosts, by the way, demonic and otherwise, because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? He's still Lord of hosts. And so as you look at these names and for sake of time, you know, download them yourself and search the scriptures and see if they are not true and search your own life and see if they're not true. He is still El Gabor. He's still the hero God. And so as these miracles unfold over these next 11 chapters, as we look at him preach this incredible message that contains a, a condensed part of the Beatitudes, Matthew's gospel records it in full. Jesus is just trying to tell you who he is. He's trying to remind you of how good he is, how powerful he is, how much he loves you. And so don't surrender to disease. Don't surrender to the forces around you, those demonic forces. Rest in your God who is still all of these. He's still almighty. He's still the strong one. He still ultimately is the one who's defeated death itself. And in him we have nothing to fear. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will guide and direct your path. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray together. For those of you that are here and maybe... You've got something going on in your life and you need prayer for it. God can heal anything and God can save anyone. And so in our prayer room, our prayer team is available. Just after service, just simply go there and say, I, I, I have this going on in my life. I, I've got cancer, would you pray for me? He still heals cancer. Just watched him do it again in Connie's dad's life. We have no idea why he's alive, save the one who is the living one. He's still him. Father, thank you. Thank you that whatever our need is, you are the supply. That when we are weak, you are strong. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you personally, Lord, would they not leave with that knowledge that the demons had 
of just simply who you are, but they would leave knowing that you also are their Lord, that they would invite you in right now as Savior. And so God, I pray that your gospel would be preached into their heart this moment. They would go to the prayer room and receive you today. Father, for those that are weak and weary, they're worn and wondering, God, would you just take and put that balm of Gilead on our lives? Lord, we need your touch. Infuse us with life and that life abundant, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.